Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson and today I'm delighted to be joined by Colin Robinson. Robinson is the co-founder of All Books and previously worked for Scribner, The New Press and Verso. He has written for a range of publications including The New York Times, The Sunday Times, The Guardian, The London Review of Books and The Nation. Today we'll be discussing his memoir in the latest issue of Granter, Betrayal in which he writes about an ancient brotherly friction that resurfaces in a game of paddleball. We'll also discuss the modern culture of gym-going and how it is reshaping the way we see our bodies. But first, we'll begin with a reading. In the winter months, when it's too cold to play outside, A and I take our bats to the welcoming warmth of the McBurney a YMCA gym where paddleball can be played on Monday and Thursday nights and in the afternoon on Saturdays and Sundays. The McBurney recently relocated from its previous premises on 23rd Street, opposite the Chelsea Hotel. The old place was the first permanent home for the YMCA in New York City, opened in 1869 with support from, amongst others, the financier J.P. Morgan and the merchant philanthropist William E. Dodge. The gloomy exercise halls and broad stone stairways of the old building were more redolent of a church than a gymnasium, echoing a time when godliness and good health were very much part of the same programme, and a far cry from the wall-to-wall mirrors and personal trainers of today's temples to muscled narcissism. The new McBurney is located just nine blocks further south, on the ground floor in the basement of an apartment building on 14th Street. Though its purpose-built premises, with their gleaming white exercise rooms and brightly tiled swimming pool, could hardly be in starker contrast with the previous building, the clientele has remained largely the same. Leaving those dedicated to fitness and physique to the city's commercial gyms, the emphasis here is more on the sociable than the cardiovascular. The crowd is generally neither young nor fit. These people would rather spend time turning radioactive pink in the steam room than labour on a Stairmaster or an exercise bike. They converse in high decibels, on clusters of stools between the lockers, or watch baseball from sticky plastic armchairs arranged around a small TV in a corner of the room. The scene resembles an exhibit of Lucian Freud's work, with yards of drooping grey flesh in every direction. The antidiluvian and generally extraneous disrobement at the McBurney is a source of great comfort to those who, like me, don't get to the gym as often as we should. Even the briefest exposure to this parade of sagging stomachs, hair-matted backs and varicose veins makes one feel not so out of shape after all, and perhaps even not that old. It's a psychosomatic workout involving no physical exercise. It's rare, too, not to come across a conversation worth listening in on. This is the New York soundtrack as the British immigrant of my age always imagined it, the city of Damon Runyon and Jimmy Breslin, of tough-sounding guys with accents that could cut through steel talking about, well, what on earth are they talking about? On one occasion, perhaps five years after Titanic had swept the Oscars, I heard two elderly denizens of the McBurney discussing the film as they towed off after a steam bath. I hear there's a new movie out about a ship that went down in the Atlantic. You mean the one that hit an iceberg? That's right. What was it called, that ship? I can't remember, but it's a disgrace they would make a film about it. All those poor people who drowned. 
Thank you for reading. That was great. Um, and perhaps I'm just Jim-averse as well, but there's something quite um, inviting about the McBurney in its social um, nature, in the way that there isn't this emphasis on sculpting oneself in the same, as you described, the temples of um, muscled narcissism. Um, I can't help but feel sometimes when I enter gym that there's something kind of Orwellian about the way that we we're all sort of plugged into the big screens and, the, and you know treadmills and so on. And I think this piece um, it captures beautifully your flight to these other places, the McBurney here, but also the park where you um, play with your brother, uh, play paddleboard with your brother. Otherwise, um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about place and exercise and the way that as you mentioned here that the McBurney um, was once a church and there's a sort of clerical air to it as well as a social air. We, have we lost that sense of ritual in our exercise? Yeah I mean I think the, the um, I don't really know um, why the clientele at the McBurney um, when it was in the old premises in Chelsea was as old as it was um, I mean it was a kind of gloomy place um, that bit of Chelsea, 23rd Street, it, it's right opposite the Chelsea Hotel, and it's um, like those big, the you know every f ten streets in Lower Manhattan, um, 14th, 23rd, 34th, they're wider streets than the side streets. They're not residential streets. They're business streets, um, but they don't have any of the grandeur of the avenues. Um, so they're, they're commercial streets like the avenues are, but narrower. And actually each of them is kind of um, quite um, dark and grimy. And um, the, uh, the McBurney on 20, 23rd Street, when it, was, um, when, it was, when it was there before it moved to 14th, was located right next to a... 12-story building opposite the Chelsea Hotel which was the um, headquarters of the Communist Party of the USA and I actually got to have a tour around that building mm. it's still owned by the Communist Party the Communist Party is actually quite a big property owner in the United States because um, in the 30s and 40s it was a substantial organization people used to leave it a lot of money I guess mm. so um, I know it's got buildings in Chicago and Los Angeles, but this is its headquarters in in, uh, oh, in New York. Somewhere Senator McCarthy is turning in his grave. <laughs> um, and it's you know that's a, that's a gloomy building too. Um, so the the YMCA is almost right next to that, and in a way the kind of um, the clientele of um, the YMCA. It's probably not that dissimilar from the clientele of the uh, American Communist Party um, mm. uh, of that YMCA. It was predominantly Jewish, and um, uh, or I don't know if it was predominantly Jewish, but certainly there were a lot of Jewish people who went to it, and it's certainly old. And um, yeah, I don't think I think exercise probably um, had a different meaning in um, the time that those guys were growing up. It was something that you actually did together rather than privately. I mean, the I suppose the introduction of um, a um, the um, iPod, you know, or the Walkman, mm -hmm. 
I mean, I suppose the name, the very name Walkman, must come from um, something that you do when you're walking. So there's a kind of mm. connection between listening and exercise, even in the name of the device. Mm. But the thing about the iPod or the Walkman is that it, I mean, it immediately privatizes your exercise. It cuts you off from everyone else. Mm. And the old uh, YMCA on 23rd Street, people, if they exercised at all, they were exercising together. So um, they were playing basketball, or they were playing paddleball, or they were swimming. There was a really dank swimming pool on the, the top floor of the YMCA on 23rd Street. I mean, it was really, I mean, you could barely see the bottom of the pool uh, because the water was, uh, well, it, 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 you know, it, it really never seemed very clean to me. Um, but, you know, when pe people, people were doing things together in that building. Uh, that's I think that's very different from modern gyms. Mm. There's a we now have personal trainers, and I guess that's that's a pretty recent phenomenon and idea if that you have one person who's kind of leading you through an exercise. Whereas there's there's a sense, um, as he said about the steam room, that they'd rather go pink in the steam room. That even if they're fairly stationary, it's the point is that there's sort of there's a communality about that, isn't there? Well, say in the steam room at um, the, the on 14th Street now. It's a big, quite a big room um, for a steam room, very large, and they have little movable plastic stools um, that you sit on in there. There's no benches fixed to the walls like there often are in steam rooms. And so the old guys quite often will go in there and they'll pull up the little plastic stools into a circle and they'll sit and they'll just basically, you know, chat. Um, you know, and they'll take turns to leave the steam room to, you know, momentarily recover outside because you, obviously you can't stay in there for ages. But there's always enough in the group to keep the conversation going. Mm. And um, I, there's a, there was a wonderful conversation that I listened to because um, I do listen there. I mean, the odd thing is that I actually am quite solitary when I'm in the YMCA, so it's a very good place to just observe and, um, and, 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 and listen into what's going on, but there was a conversation that I really loved the, um, a few months back. Um, there was a bunch of these old, I'm sure they were Jewish guys sitting in there, and one of them was saying that when he was, um, whenever he heard uh, Johnny Mathis on the radio, Johnny Mathis being the, this crooner from the 50s. Mm -hmm. um, it took him back to life, um, uh, his, his life when he was living with his parents in the Bronx. And he said, it's just, Johnny Mathis just has that effect on me. It just takes me straight back to the family apartment. And I can see my mother and father sitting there listening. Um, and um, he said, it's just fantastic. I just, I just love the way that his voice is capable of taking me back over those decades and one of the other guys said um, in the group he said hey, do you know what's uh, you know what's top of the hip parade now and uh, they all said no you know and they had no idea and he said it's a song called fuck you and uh, they all went really <laughs> he said yeah he said it's called fuck you he said do you think he said do you think in 30 years time there's going to be a bunch of old guys sitting around in this steam room saying you know, whenever I hear that song, fuck you, it takes me right back to when I was sitting around with my parents. <laughs> uh, so great. That's amazing. I love the overheard um, line 
in uh, the overheard conversation in, that you just read as well that because there's this sense that time has stopped I mean that's the, that's the interesting thing about both of those anecdotes is that in both of them it seems for the, for the, for the speaker that, that time has kind of stopped and that the world outside them may be carrying on but their memory of Johnny Mathis or in this case their impression of the Titanic you know even though <laughs> there's no sense of temporality in that anecdote that's why it's funny when the guy says you know there's t- that terrible accident those people that drowned even though it was a while ago now um, it's yeah it, that not there that sense of, of time not changing even when you were mentioning the swimming pool being dank and I'm sure that would be really unpleasant to swim in but there's something quite um, special about how uh, if there's a um, preserved kind of world within within a world that's changing so rapidly I think there's something quite um, um, welcoming about that definitely I mean I think the thing about being in a gym is that in a way, um, you know, most things in the outside world, you know, you have to kind of uh, rush through. I mean, in a gym, in a way, the point is to, you know, the 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 longer that you're there, the kind of uh, the fitter you feel you're becoming. So it's actually quite a good idea to spend a long time in a gym. It's not something mm. you want to rush particularly. Mm. I mean, I I did hear a. Some um, women um, talking in New York um, a little while ago about they again. I overheard this in a restaurant. They were thinking of setting up a um, a uh, a yoga place that you could go to at lunchtime if you were in a rush. And um, it struck me as being sort of odd that you could kind of rush yoga. And they were thinking that they were going to call this place, as, as they were talking about it, uh, it wasn't going to be called yoga, y- yoga, it was going to be called yoga. It would be like for women on the run. Right. But um, the situation in the YMCA is the exact opposite of that. I mean, this, this, I, I, you really get the impression with a lot of these guys in there that after they've left the YMCA, it's probably, you know, not too much else for them to do, you know. They probably have to go home, you know. Mm. But that's about it. So they don't. They, it's not. It's not a place that you get a sense of people rushing in and out. Mm. And I really like that about it. Mm. Um, and I think it's really um, a good a good moment here, maybe, to talk about that reflective quality that can happen in those spaces where you know you're you shouldn't rush, where you you want to take a step back from the world and and take your time because it's also got, I suppose, health benefits. But, um, and in the piece, um, there is this moment of extraordinary kind of telescopic reflection, which doesn't actually happen in the YMCA, but um, just to give a tiny bit of context, um, you and your brother play um, a very personal version of paddleball, which I'd like to talk about in a second. But um, essentially what happens is there's a series of events um, that are in part triggered by, I think, kind of a playful joke on your part, um, where you put a notice up um, to say that the other paddleboard players have been hogging, hogging the court, um, and then sign it as your brother, um, and put that up. And he's a little unsure about this, and it leads to a kind of, as he puts it, war with this this other pair of brothers who come along, and they they feel sort of offended and they have to use the word hogging profusely to sort of make their point that that this has been a sort of um, 
uh, a barb. Anyway, um, uh, what happens, um, I don't want to give too much away about the piece, but this leads to um, an accident um, which your brother um, is injured, not by them, but by, by his own means in a way, but it's partly because you've left the uh, the safety, let's say, of, of um, McBurney. Um, and then this leads to a reflection about your relationship with him when you were very young. And I think it's a very common thing for older siblings to be to get a little bit drunk on the power that they have over their younger siblings. And sometimes, particularly boys, and this in, in my experience is to, um, you know, give them a, um, uh, a headlock or whatever it is that... that uh, and But you feel immense remorse about this and um, and sadness about... Um, your behaviour to your brother and I think that that um, it was extremely moving and unexpected that that it seemed to grow right out of your um, dynamic on the court which is so um, personal as I said that the game that you're playing is is in some ways very competitive but it's also a game that you have created between the two of you um, so it's not um, it's not playing by the normal rules um, so I guess do you um, do you feel that these spaces um, surprise you with the sort of reflective um, channels that they send you down sometimes? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's, I mean, there's quite a lot in in what uh, you've just said. I mean, I think it is true that the way that we that my brother and I played paddleball um, had actually very little uh, connection to the. Um, established rules of the game. I mean, you'd have to say with paddleball, the established rules of the game are not that established mm. because um, it's a sport that's not played by very many people. I think um, it's really only played um, on bits of the northeast coast of the United States. Um, it's quite hard even to get paddle balls. The ball mm. is... Um, um, smaller than a handball. Um, a handball is where you just whack a ball against the wall with your hand and that's quite widely played mm -hmm. um, I, and I think probably outside of the US but it's certainly widely played across the US. Um, but paddleball was invented I think in the, I can't, I can't remember it's in the piece but I think it was in the in the 60s um, mm -hmm. by some guy who injured his hand playing um, handball and too cold to yeah, and then it was right. It might have been too cold, and yeah. and uh, maybe the ball was too hard, and uh, anyway, I think he hurt his hand. So he sort of crafted this rudimentary bat out of wood, mm. and that's the game of paddleball was born. You know, so it's not uh, you know I, I, it's not that codified a game or established a game, but it's certainly a game which you play with. Um, you're supposed to play ambidextrously. Oddly, I mean. Mm. And the and the and the good players do. I mean, they just you just if the ball comes to you on your left, you just switch the bat to your left hand and you hit it that way. And it's certainly a game which is played by keeping the ball low. You you really want to keep it low to the ground because mm. um, uh, that's the way that you can hit it fastest. Um, so um, Andy and I had played a lot, quite a bit of tennis. I mean, not well. But we had played quite a bit of tennis when we were in England together, um, growing up, and um, so we were, we were coming to this game quite late in our life. And um, you know, I mean, 
in our in, he was in his 40s and I was in my 50s so the chances of us really adapting to the rules of a completely different set of movements were very slight and so what we did was we kind of play a, a, a game of paddleball which is more l connected to tennis than it is to the uh, the way that um, people in the US play paddleball so there's a lot of sort of looping shots and we certainly never switch the paddle from one hand to the other and so it, it sort of it, and our scoring system I think is completely different from theirs it is a bit like the sort of I, I remember once um, seeing a couple of um, young boy twins children of a friend of mine and they had a completely private language these I mean, this is when they were four or five these boys hmm. and they, they they I mean yeah, I mean it was an amazingly sophisticated private language you, you had no idea what the words that they were saying to each other meant but they did they, 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 they you know they understood each other hmm. I mean it was terrifying because they could plot all sorts of incredible <laughs> mischief <laughs> without anyone knowing about it so one of them would cause a distraction and the other one would go and set the house on fire you know and hmm. um but it so our, our, our kind of uh, our, our adaptation of the rules of paddleball are a, a, it's a it's a, it's a sort of private language between two brothers of that sort and um but you know it it it, it uh, one of the sources of tension i think between us and the um and the other brothers who played paddleball in the YMCA um, was that, or at least the way that we felt it, uh, was that they um, were um, sort of disparaging of the fact that we didn't play the game properly. And um, they did actually make some comments about that um, after we'd um, after we'd suggested that it might be. I mean, you know, the situation in the in in the YMCA was that. The, the place is run on the basis of you know a bunch of old guys who've been going there for a long time and you know they I think they had a um, um, a feeling that they were entitled to play whenever they wanted to and um, so there was no need for a system of booking the court because it was kind of their court so these Aravists arrive who don't know how to play the game and uh, you know, are sort of standing around on the edge of the uh, on the edge of the, the the edge of the gym, waiting for them to finish. I don't think that they much appreciated that. It's striking that you were opposed to another pair of brothers, I think, and that you mentioned that it being like a private language. Um, I have many examples, in my own family, of the way that we adapt rules for games, board games, physical games, create whole new games, and I think. It is a peculiar thing to families, isn't it, that we we, we try to um, remake them in our own sort of image and or, or in an own, our own family image. And um, the kind of um, brusqueness that you experience in these other brothers who are, who are quite um, demonstrative and, and just plain rude as well. Um, uh, there's that wonderful moment where he's... he's one of the brothers is is very abrupt and says, you know, you don't play that, you just don't know the rules to this game, and and I think in in quite an English way, you and your brother are just like, well, you know, don't say anything. But afterwards, are like, well, that was very rude, and <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, I think um, 
it, it is it's interesting that that your battle your main battle in the piece is with another set of brothers um there's a kind of you know this is how we do it and it's not it's not american and english as much as it is i think about one family you know nucleus versus another yeah well i mean you know i mean i'm sure each family has its own dynamics i mean i, I mean i also think though that i do think there is you know i mean new yorkers are extremely brusque you know mm. i mean um they're not as brusque as they would like to be you know there's a <laughs> Uh, that, I mean, they, 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 you know, I mean, there's a, a joke that, you know, um, how do you ask for directions in New York City? And the answer is, you know, do you know the way to Central Park or should I go fuck myself? <laughs> to know that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and it's not actually, you know, actually, you know, people are a lot, um, m you know, more polite than that most of the time. But, but they're certainly, but compared with, Compared with uh, British people, mm -hmm. they you know them 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 you know they're much louder and they're much more outgoing and um, and they're also much more competitive. And the way that those brothers played, and this might be their family dynamic as well as them being American, I don't know. But I mean the way they played paddleball, it was like they were really aggressive to each other. Mm. I mean they would you know they would contest every point. Uh, you know if the ball. Um, was near the line there would be a big argument about you know which side of the line it was on mm. um, you know if, 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 if my brother and I ever had arguments about which side of the line it was on it would be one of us trying to concede the point to the other not to win the point from the other mm. you know we would it would be um, the, the only real exclamations um, that we would make when we were playing would be things like you know fine shot you know or mm. well played you know uh, we'd be complimenting each other you know mm. or apologizing for having played such a poor shot that the other person found it difficult to get to it that that kind of language was completely absent from the other brothers game i mean they were like you know really mean to each other it seemed to us mm. and so we were quite intimidated by them I mean, if they could be that mean to each other how could they be towards us you yeah. know i think that's what's so touching about that moment when you feel that pang of guilt for your, you know, when you were, you gave your brother these five options when you were young and, you, you know, he had to choose one of them and they were all these various forms of sort of domestic torture and that, um, it seems, it's so at odds with your dynamic and your relationship and the way that you preserve these very, um, quite sweet rules of the game actually, you know, the sort of looping shots which feel, that seem at least to someone who hasn't played the game like myself to be, um, Let's say more style than 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 uh, than than cutthroat, um, uh, and you know the the game, as I understand it, is about keeping the ball very low, and that seems to be completely at odds with how you play it. Um, and as you say, you know you would always compliment each other on a good shot, and there's a general air of decorum about your your relationship. And so when this accident happens, and your brother is injured, his shoulder is hit by a um, falling rock. Um, when he's trying to dislodge a ball um, in the in the park, um, your um, your sense of your pang of guilt that you feel there is so odds with that um, is cuts right against your protective instinct. I think your other brotherly instinct. Do you feel? I mean, that it seems um, a really unexpected moment to reflect on sort of past cruelty when you're, and I guess that's the moment when you laugh, that sort of gut reaction. Is the moment that prompts that reflection? Did, that surprised you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's happened to, you know, um, more than once that by, you know, I mean, there's a certain slapstick quality to someone um, getting, you know, caught by a falling rock. Or I remember on another occasion, my brother, uh, you know, we rented bikes and um, he decided that he would just check the height of the saddle by riding around the forecourt of the place where we rented the bikes, which it had loose gravel in it and um, on the surface of it. So he got on the bike, pedaled it three times, tried to turn around, the bike slid out from under him and he like landed on the gravel. And I remember um, I was just convulsed with <laughs> laughter and uh, you know, I mean, it was it was the funniest thing I'd ever <laughs> seen. And then I looked down at him and you know, he'd cut all of his hand on the gravel, and I just mm. thought, that's terrible, you know, mm. why? For that to be your first instinct to someone who's actually hurt themselves seems to, seem to me to be really, mm. really um, uh, a, a, a terrible thing. And, and um, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've thought about it a bit. I mean, you know, why, why, why is that? And, and, and is it something which is specific inside my family, or do you have that response to, it, to that happening to anyone? And uh, I mean, I sort of comfort myself by thinking that, yeah, you know, probably you would. You probably would laugh at that if it happened to anyone until the point that you realised it was serious. And that makes me feel a bit better. But I also think, no, there was, you know, in my, you know, when I was a teenager at the age of 15, 16, I was very sadistic towards, I mean, he's eight years younger than I was, so he was, you know, seven or eight years old. And he was helpless in the face of the strength that I could, uh, you know, bring to bear on him. And I enjoyed torturing him. I, I, I'm sure I did. I mean, there was no other reason for doing it. I mean, it wasn't as though he was misbehaving or, mm. you know, it was designed to get him to behave in a particular way. No, the, 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 uh, the reason that I did it was because it was a kind of naked exercise of power over someone who was pretty much helpless in the uh, face of my superior strength and I enjoyed that and it really it makes me feel very uncomfortable uh, it's not something that I feel good about um, I think I, I may mentioned in the piece I, I sort of made a formal apology to him in a restaurant in a bit in the way that Bill Clinton apologized for slavery mm. you know a, f a few years ago I, I said to him you know I, I, I need there's something I need to say to you I want to say you know I'm very sorry that I tortured you when you were you know, when you were a kid in the way that I did. And, um, I mean, he was, it was sort of interesting because he was like, well, yeah, it's fine. You know, mm -hmm. he really wasn't, he wasn't going to like make a big deal out of accepting the apology. He mm -hmm. just kind of sort of shrugged about it and, you know, we got on with, we got on with dinner. Mm. But it, um, I guess in one sense, you don't know, do you, when you're, when you're that young, the power that you're wielding is going to have um, your sense of moral right and wrong is, is, as you say, it's naked. There's no, um, there are no checks and balances. So it's interesting that that cruelty goes completely unchecked and then in your adult life you, you have to deal with the consequences in a way that you, you wouldn't behave like that now, obviously. I mean, you know, that's... <laughs> but, and yet here you are in that feeling that kind of pang of remorse. I mean... Yeah, it's it's quite um, 
it's quite striking to me that there's no um that, that I suppose one of the reasons I was thinking when when you start laughing is that we do tend to laugh at things that scare us as well i mean if if you see something that um sometimes if you have a sort of spasm of fear then then you do laugh sort of you know you sort of let a laugh out like you could let a scream out um until you realize something that so i guess i wonder if um the double-edgedness of that reaction to me seems to be that you're you're both being um in some ways like that um the torturer that you were when you were little but also the protective brother um who's would you say that's in your reaction at all or is it do you see it in a more um critical way well i don't know i mean i hope you're right i mean i i i i, I mean i and you're right I, I i mean you are right about the idea that we sometimes um that being frightened of something the consequences of something can make you laugh there's no question about that i, I don't know i mean i think um I mean, I you know, I I do know that I sort of, um, I you know, slapstick makes me laugh, and I, some people it leaves really cold, and I I I do enjoy, you know, I mean, I it, it appeals to my sense of humour very very, you know, I sort of like you know, I like Mr Bean, you know, mm-hmm. I, mean, uh, uh, I like Charlie Chaplin, you know, I, people falling over makes this Buster Keaton, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's funny to me, so there's there's um, so there's, so, and I'm, I'm fine about that. That doesn't make me feel bad. It's the, um, it's the, it's just you know what what uh, made me connect that to my behaviour when I was younger was because I just sort of, the, at the back of my mind, there's this feeling that actually the thing that's make that's entertaining me, that's amusing me, mm. is the pain which is being someone else's suffering. And obviously, you know, to the extent that that's true, it makes me feel very uncomfortable. You mm. know, I, that's not. That's not uh, something that I like in myself. Mm. I think it's a remarkably honest piece in that way, and it's very unflinching because it takes that reaction, which I think most people would sort of actively dismiss, you know, willfully ignore, really, um, and and really allows it to bloom. Um, and uh, yeah, I, this isn't so much a question as maybe a closing remark about the piece, but um, it's. Yeah, I think that's one of its great strengths is the way that you allow us into that um, that doubt and self-questioning, which, um, you know, I think without that it would be a kind of charming tour into the gym, you know. <laughs> and um, it's, yeah, it's really fantastic. But thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, I enjoyed it.